And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Oh, been a busy weekend. Yeah. Looking after our friend's cat. His name is Thomas, the cat. The cat's name is Thomas. And... He's old. He meows Craigly. Okay. And I've developed many different nicknames for him over this weekend. Mm-hmm. Like Prince Thomas, uh, O Tomas, Thomason, uh, things like that. Always nothing like Tom or Tommy. It's always Thomas and something around that. Got it. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I missed you yesterday while you were out cat sitting, but I'm excited for tonight's movie. Yeah, I don't know what to expect because I've never seen this movie. Yeah, so this week's movie is The Brides of Dracula from 1960, directed by Terrence Fisher. And we all knew that Dracula was into polygamy, with the mm-hmm. multiple brides. Yes. So it's more, I'm surprised that they're still alive. This movie's well, title quote is unquote alive. one of the most inaccurate movie titles oh, really? um, that we have covered so far. We have run into some inaccurate movie titles in our day, but nothing about this title is literally true. Um, there's no brides and there's no Dracula. So this is a hammer horror film. Okay. Uh, It is the sequel to their version of Dracula from 1958. So before we dive into talking about the inaccurately named The Brides of Dracula, um, why don't we do a brief refresher on Hammer's version of Dracula, which we typically refer to on the show as Horror of Dracula. Yeah, we covered Horror of Dracula back in episode 232. Wow, that was, I guess, a while ago, huh? 66 episodes. Yeah. It's been a while. So if you want to go listen back to that episode, that's the number you are looking for. Um, And what was kind of interesting is it deviates from the novel. It deviates from Universal's Dracula in its plot just to kind of change things up. And it's also uh, kind of the movie we, we point to when we go like, this is why colorful gothic horror has made a comeback Mm -hmm. the movie is set in 1885 and we see jonathan harker arriving to castle dracula in romania and he is excited to begin his post as a librarian when he arrives no one is home um but as he is making his way through the seemingly abandoned castle a woman approaches him asking for his help but she runs off when the count suddenly appears the Count shows Harker to his room and locks him in, but does get a look at Jonathan's fiance, Lucy, in a photo. We learn from Harker's diary that uh, he's actually here to destroy Dracula. He's not a librarian at all, or if he is, it's a side hustle. <laughs> and so he tries to get out of the room and find Dracula's coffin. He encounters the woman again, and he's like, yeah, no, I'll totally help you. Except it turns out that she is a vampire and she bites him. So he realizes that, you know, I've become a victim. He hides his diary, etc. He he finds the bride, stakes her, and then he ends up fully becoming a victim to the Count. Next, we see Dr. Van Helsing, played by Peter Cushing, arrive in the town looking for Harker. He gets the diary. He manages to stake Harker so he doesn't become, you know, the monster he hunted himself. And then tracks down Dracula. Van Helsing heads to Bavaria to meet Mr. and Mrs. Holmwood, who are Arthur and Mina, who are relatives of Lucy, uh, Harker's fiance. Um, but Lucy is too ill to receive this news because she is being drained by Dracula. 
through the course of the movie, uh, Arthur Holmwood kind of becomes Van Helsing's apprentice as they hunt down first Lucy as she turns into a vampire and then um, hunt down Dracula as he goes after Mina. Um, by the end, uh, you know, we have a carriage race across Romania as Dracula takes Mina back to his castle and it ends with Dracula getting dusted and... Mina being fine, you know, saved from vampirism, Arthur's fine, and Van Helsing's like, cool, off to walk into the sunset, or sunrise, I should say. Um, so that's kind of a quick summary of the first movie. We really liked this movie, its use of color, its changing of what happens, Christopher Lee is Dracula, like it was all really fantastic. So we originally ranked it at number five. Mm-hmm. It is currently ranked at number eight because, you know, a couple things have slotted in above it. But yeah, so it still ranks in the top 10, still highly recommended movie. We, yeah, I don't think we really had a bad thing to say. I think the only complaint I remember making is um, in the kind of like action finale climax because Peter Cushing's version of Van Helsing is a, a man of action. They're running around the castle and like dracula eventually gets taken out by the sun but van helsing wards him off with a crucifix that is just him holding two candlesticks together in like a t and that shouldn't count i'm of the (laughs) firm belief that shit like that shouldn't count what gives the crucifix its power against vampires is its religious significance not like it's shape the shape yeah um the other thing that's pretty notable about horror of dracula is its explicit tying of vampire attacks and sex mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh i think when um you were saying in the context setting of that episode that the actress who plays mina was explicitly told like the morning after you've been attacked just pretend you've had like the best sex of your life yeah And I mean, it doesn't uh, hurt that Christopher Lee is sexy as fuck. (laughs) So that's Horror of Dracula. Uh, So Brides of Dracula has a lot to live up to. Uh, Big shoes to fill. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we'll see. I'm really not sure what to expect when you say like the title is inaccurate. Like I didn't, I wasn't sure if we would get Dracula because we saw Dracula get dusted, but that's never stopped him before. And now you're telling me there aren't even any brides? Yeah, so... Is there no wedding at all? <laughs> so let me tell you a bit about this movie. Um, Horror of Dracula had earned $3.5 million at the box office in 1958. So that made a sequel pretty inevitable. Uh, however, just as they had with their Frankenstein sequel, Revenge of Frankenstein, Hammer chose to walk a very different path than what Universal had done with their Dracula sequels. So to compare to Frankenstein, Universal's Frankenstein sequels followed the monster and like a succession of Frankenstein descendants, I guess, over the years. Never the same Frankenstein, but always his like son, grandson, granddaughter, that sort of thing. His uh, nephew, I think. Yeah. Uh, Reviving the same monster over time. Right. Whereas Hammer's Frankenstein series follows the Baron, Victor Frankenstein, on the run from the law as he leaves behind a trail of, you know, broken lives and horrific monsters similarly hammer's dracula sequel does not feature the return of count dracula or christopher lee um after all he died pretty graphically at the end of the first movie like we see his like skull collapse into dust instead the dracula sequel sees the return of van helsing and hammer's dracula series is sort of the adventures of vampire hunter van helsing Mm. um in both cases these decisions do headline peter cushing at the expense of christopher lee and this is largely because hammer believed that peter cushing was their star like he's frankenstein he's van helsing he's sherlock holmes and lee in hammer's opinion was just like a tall guy that they could get to play monsters. You know, he doesn't have any dialogue in Curse of Frankenstein. Uh, I don't really recall him having any dialogue in The Mummy. 
Uh, he gets very little dialogue in Horror of Dracula, even though he has this very magnetic screen presence. The most I think we've heard him talk in a horror movie is when he was one of the Baskervilles in Hound of the Baskervilles. Which, uh, to be fair, we watched as a horror adjacent. Yes. Um, so not a horror movie. Yeah. But all of this shows that, like, at this time, Hammer's attitude was that Peter Cushing was the star and Christopher Lee was just some actor they could get. And so that kind of informed how this film was written. Um, This film was commissioned by producer Anthony Hines in the spring of 1959. Uh, Initially, Jimmy Sangster was hired to write it. He had written Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, Revenge of Frankenstein, The Mummy, basically all of these Hammer Horror films since around X the Unknown or so. Uh, So Sangster wrote a sequel entitled Disciple of Dracula, which would follow a new vampire who's like an acolyte of the Counts, um, who kind of like is creating like a cult of Dracula in the wake of the Count's death. In the fall of 1959, Hines turned Sangster's script over to Peter Bryan for a rewrite Brian was actually a camera operator at Hammer, not a writer, but he was battling throat cancer and needed the extra income, Um, and he would pass away not too long after this. Besides, Jimmy Sangster had been a production manager originally before they started hiring him to write scripts, so, you know. Now, uh, Brian rewrote Sangster's script, kind of de-emphasized the role of Dracula. Um, So this disciple, you know, was turned into a vampire by Dracula, but there's less of this element of like, I'm trying to like, you know, raise Dracula up as someone who gets worshipped or whatever. And it's more just like, he's a vampire who got turned by Dracula. He also added a finale where Van Helsing calls upon the powers of hell to summon a swarm of bats to take down Dracula's disciple? Uh, I feel like Van Helsing is on the side of heaven, Mm. not hell. This is what Peter Cushing's problem was, too. He objected to this ending, uh, believing that the righteous Van Helsing would never, like, broker a deal with the devil, even to defeat a vampire. Like, that's cool as hell, but, like, it doesn't quite fit. Yeah. Brian was also the person who came up with the title The Brides of Dracula, which is not accurate because Dracula is not in this movie. There are female vampires in this movie who feature heavily, but they are not Dracula's brides from the previous movie or any other time in Dracula's life. They are vampires who have been turned by this like disciple of Dracula, the spawn of Dracula. So, (laughs) so they're, they're, they're the brides of Dracula once removed, right? Like they are only the brides of Dracula. If, you think that Dracula making another dude into a vampire and then dying makes that guy the new Dracula and then they're his brides. Dracula's daughters-in-law. Right. But that's not (laughs) really like a connection that the movie makes in its script. Either way, Cushing wanted rewrites. So playwright and former Tory MP Edward Percy Smith was brought in for another rewrite on the script he basically came in gave Cushing the ending he wanted kind of gussied up the script with historical references and like classy theatrical dialogue um, and also added these themes of class consciousness and social climbing to the story okay that's interesting shooting began at Bray Studios on the 16th of January 1960 Director Terrence Fisher and cinematographer Jack Asher returned from previous Hammer Horror productions. Uh, The film's score is by Malcolm Williamson, an Australian composer who later in 1975 was appointed Master of the Queen's Music. Oh, damn. The film was budgeted at £120,000, which is higher than the first movie's £81,000. The film's new villain, Baron Meinster, was played by David Peel, uh, an actor who was 40 years old at the time of production. Uh, I feel like someone felt very like 
proud of themselves for being clever coming up with Meinster for a monster. <laughs> uh, David Peel had been trained at the Royal Academy of the Dramatic Arts and had been acting on television in minor roles for about 10 years at this point before getting his first major role in a feature film as Baron Meinster in The Brides of Dracula. Despite that, this didn't really turn into like the launching pad for the rest of his career. He actually only appeared in one more film after this uh, for Hammer before retiring and becoming an art dealer and like antiquities collector. Oh, that's neat. Peel was homosexual and queer subtext around his character is very strong in the film. Uh, you know, he was sired by Dracula. We first meet him. He's living alone with his ashamed mother um, who like can't introduce him in polite society. He attacks Van Helsing. And all of this is to say homosexuality in the UK would not be decriminalized until 1967. So it is still like a fully illegal act in the UK at this time. There's not really a lot known of David Peel's private life or his life like after he quit acting. We do know that like he became an art dealer, he became involved in his local church, and he passed away in 1981. Actress Martita Hunt, uh, who was 60 years old at the time of shooting, plays the Baroness Meinster. Uh, she was born in Buenos Aires and moved to the UK at age 20 to become an actress. She'd been acting on stage since 1923, on film since 1932. Her best remembered role is as Miss Havisham in David Lean's 1946 film adaptation of Great Expectations, where she was reprising her role from the 1939 play version. In the later years of her career, she sort of had a specialty playing like grand old dames, like in films like Anna Karenia or Anastasia or The Unsinkable Molly Brown, these kinds of like older stateswoman kind of roles. Mm. Okay. Um, this is sort of a variant of that uh, in that she's this, you know, older baroness, but she's also maybe like not entirely sane. Anyways. I mean, that's tied to Miss Habersham, right? Sure. So. Yeah, totally. Um, and Martita Hunt passed away in 1969. Another older actress in this film is Frida Jackson, who plays the Baroness's servant Greta. Born in 1907, uh, she was also an experienced stage actress dating back to 1934. She acted for like the old Vic for a long time. She appeared in movies like uh, Henry V back in the 1940s. And over the course of her career, slowly transitioned from playing innocent young women when she was a younger woman to like dangerous villainesses as an older woman. I mean, that's the route you want as you <laughs> age up as an actress. Yeah. The film's cast of young, attractive women, the ostensible brides of the inaccurate title, consist of Yvonne Monlar, who played... Nicole in Circus of Horrors. Uh, she was born in 1939 in France and passed away in 2017. And then the other major actress in this film is Andre Melly, who was born in Liverpool in 1932 and acted on stage and television and radio through the 1950s. In 1954, she appeared in the extremely popular film The Bells of St. Trinian's, uh, which was the first film in the long-running St. Trinian series. And she remained well-known to television audiences through the 1960s before retiring to Ibiza with her husband in 1974. And she passed away in 2020. Okay. So The Brides of Dracula was released in the UK on July 7th, 1960, and was distributed in the US by Universal International beginning on September 5th, 1960, on a double feature with The Leech Woman. What a pairing. I the, guess, I guess you know, Brides of Dracula, you can make a tie sure. to a leech. Yeah, I leeches guess. are like vampires. Yeah. Leech yeah. Woman. Yeah. Yeah, both fictional. Right. Uh, this was during <laughs> that period of time when like Universal was releasing Hammer's films in the US and that was giving Hammer permission to not have to be as careful about infringing on Universal's trademarks. So as an example, 
in horror of Dracula, Van Helsing explicitly states that like vampires can't transform. That's like some superstition. Um, that's, that's nonsense. Uh, but in this movie, they can turn into bats. Uh, you don't see their reflections in mirrors, that kind of stuff. Um, which is, you know, closer to the classic universal style vampires. Cool. The picture was a hit at the box office that year. Uh, it was one of the top moneymakers in the UK for 1960, but critics were unimpressed. Um, the kind of consensus when you read a lot of the reviews is that many reviewers were essentially complaining of hammer horror fatigue. Uh, there are references to this movie as being like yet another in hammers unending series or uh, like, this I, is kind of like, this is all stuff we've seen before. And like, you know, yeah, but hoary old tricks and, and you know, <laughs> no, these, these critics need to chill the fuck out. <laughs> Cause like, this is a, a sequel to the movie that started it all. Hmm. It's like, I understand maybe you're getting fatigued, but this is like the OG, hmm. right? You give them the benefit of a doubt. I see. I do think it's really interesting to see that like concepts like superhero fatigue that we see thrown around by film critics a lot now, like are not new concepts, right? That we have these critics in 1960 being like, I'm so tired of these hammer horror films. Uh, one of the most interesting comments was someone saying that like, it would have been scarier in black and white. I don't know. <laughs> Basically, yeah, the overall critical response was like, oh, another one of these. Um, and yet 1960 starts off in the UK with Peeping Tom and people losing their fucking shit because it's too much. Yeah, yeah. And yet, you but know, then, we serve like, up like, oh, but you liked chicken nuggies before. So right. you want chicken nuggies again? And they're like, fuck you. Yeah, no, no, no. Fuck I, chicken I, I nuggies. Do, I do think that's very like an interesting observation, right? It's like, we've been doing these gothic horror things. This is what's familiar. So when Peeping Tom comes along, it's like, oh gosh, no. But then we go back to the comfortable and it's like, oh, this is so boring and, and drab, you know? Yeah. Um, oh my goodness. However, among horror genre fans, The Brides of Dracula is widely considered to be the high point of Hammer Horror as a studio and is one of the best vampires vampire films in the gothic horror tradition of vampire films. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Sign me up. This one's great. So The Brides of Dracula was released by Universal Home Video on DVD and Blu-ray in their Hammer Horror collection and by Scream Factory on like a standalone Blu-ray. The Universal DVD and the Scream Factory Blu-ray are in the correct aspect ratio the universal blu-ray is cropped universal what the fuck <laughs> uh if you're looking for this movie online you can rent it from apple tv google play youtube and amazon are those in the right aspect i don't know sure you'd have to rent from each yeah of i'm not them just spending like check. five bucks just to double check we have this on on dvd well what is the proper aspect ratio proper aspect ratio is 1.66 to 1 um, and the cropped version on the universal Blu-ray is two to one. Okay. Uh, so keep an eye out for that mm -hmm. listeners. Um, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss the brides of Dracula or rather the daughters-in-law of Dracula, <laughs> uh, from 1960 directed by Terrence Fisher. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Brides of Dracula from 1960, directed by Terrence Fisher. Ben, um, have you seen this before? No, this was my first time seeing this movie. I did enjoy parts of it. Hmm. Yeah, this did not live up to the hype for me. Like, it was fine. It was fine. But we've seen much, much better. Yeah, I feel like after a pretty dynamite first act, it feels like it never really figures out 
where to go from there and then it just kind of stops yeah it's messy nothing really comes together um i think this script could have percolated a little bit longer or or like less long like one or the other because it went through three writers over the course of a year so like either you know you can feel that it's been through three writers yeah tbh well why don't i give the plot summary yeah for sure so our main character here is marianne danielle she is on her way to a teaching position in bad stein (laughs) um her carriage stops at a nearby village when um a mysterious man sets her carriage onward without her Side note about this mysterious man, uh, when the movie opens, the carriage gets stopped because there's like a stump in the road and the mysterious man hops on the back of the carriage uh, and then he hops off when they get to town and then, yeah, pays for the carriage to go onward. Don't know who this mysterious man is. The movie never fucking explains it. Yeah, like, you know, to be charitable, you can sort of assume that he's like, that he does this a lot, like that he's a guy who procures young women for what's about to happen next. But the movie, he does never show up again. Like it it never, the movie never loops back around to tie up that loose end. Now for Marianne, uh, this means that she's stuck here in the village. That is until the local Baroness, (laughs) Baroness Meinster, comes by and is like oh you're all alone well come have dinner at my estate and you can stay there and we'll get you to Badstein in the morning once at the estate marianne meets the servant greta and they make a big deal out of greta's the only servant who is still here so nope that mysterious man isn't anyone here right and the baroness talks about how like yeah i want people to think i'm all alone up here i want them to think my son is dead because actually my son is not dead he's just locked up because of an illness now marianne is like well this is very strange because when i saw him through the window uh which is why he gets brought up um he looked fine and then as she's getting ready for bed she looks out and she sees what looks to be like the young Baron, young as in like he's 20, uh, about to jump off a ledge. So she calls out, no, stop. She runs down and she tries to help him. She's surprised to find that he is chained to the wall, basically. Uh, there's like a chain around his leg. He's like, no, my mother is actually just wanting to have all of the power as of a Baroness, um, even though everything rightfully belongs to me. You can help me by freeing me. She does this, and he escapes. Um, he basically tells Marianne, go pack your things and we'll get out of here. Then the Baron takes his mother, who is clearly like terrified that he is now free, uh, and attacks her. Once Marianne comes down, um, the servant Greta is kind of like crying that he's free out of terror, but also laughing maniacally about it. She realizes that the Baroness is dead um and marianne runs out of the castle completely terrified because of greta's like crazed laughter great first act gothic spooky love it yeah it's like a pretty effective little like horror short story almost you know the next morning marianne is found by dr van helsing she's on the side of the road And it turns out Dr. Van Helsing has been summoned to this local village by the, um, the priest. So Van Helsing's helping Marianne, um, to get to Badstein. But when they stop in the village, they learn that there was a death overnight of a young girl. It's clear to us and to Van Helsing that the girl died from a vampire attack. After getting Marianne to the school, uh, Van Helsing comes back and is investigating what happened to the girl. He goes to the priest and he's like, listen, this is exactly a vampire. Here's what we got to do. And the priest is like, ah, well, let me give you Chekhov's holy water (laughs) uh, to help you in your fight. That night, Van Helsing goes to the gravesite of the girl and hears 
um, a crazy woman talking to her. It's Greta talking to her and it's analogous to a birth. She's like, just one more push and you'll be out and like pushing out through the the dirt and everything. Really neat way to phrase it. Yeah, like Greta as the midwife of this vampire birth. It's very cool. Because of Greta's interference, though, um, the new vampiric girl, I'm sure she's given a name. I didn't catch it. She is not. Ah, so she's just vampiric girl. Okay, Mm. so she runs off. She manages to escape. The priest holds on to Greta while Van Helsing heads to the Baron Castle. He knows what's up. Once there, he sees that the Baron, they actually have a brief confrontation, but the Baron escapes with his own uh, casket. Van Helsing meets and destroys the Baroness, the mother, and he, you know, he finishes up at the castle. Meanwhile, the Baron heads to Marianne's school uh, and they're going to get engaged. Good for her. As Marianne is out of the room, though, um, the Baron comes back and attacks and kills her roommate, Gina. The next day, Van Helsing hears of Gina's death, heads to the school, learns of the engagement, and is, like, very worried about Marianne, but doesn't say anything about, like, hey, vampire, though. Um, He plans to come back that evening to kind of deal with vampire Gina, but he comes back just a hint too late. Um, He has everyone kind of taking turns watching the coffin, Uh, It's supposedly locked up, but she manages to get out anyways, and we get this cool confrontation between Gina and Marianne, but because Van Helsing is perpetually late, like a wizard, Gina manages to escape. She does tell Marianne, though, that the Baron's up at the windmill, so Van Helsing goes to head there. At the windmill, Van Helsing fights with the Baron, loses, and then gets bitten so this is where it's, a, I, I think this was like a really neat idea. What happens when Van Helsing gets bitten? Um, he kind of awakes and he realizes he's been bitten. He heats up what looks to be like a, some piece of iron and basically brands himself, like burns where the wound is and then pours the holy water on it. And that causes the bite mark to go away and therefore he won't turn into a vampire. While Van Helsing's doing that, the Baron heads and gets Marianne, confronts her as vampire, um, and brings her back to the windmill. And he's like, yes, Van Helsing, I'm going to turn her right in front of you. You will be witness to this. Side note to all of this, the two vampiric brides, they're still just here. They're just hanging out watching Van Helsing do whatever. Um, Greta does get attacked and killed when Van Helsing first arrives, um... So, you know, some action there that I forgot to mention earlier, but it's fine. So when the Baron comes in and is like, haha, Marianne's in danger, Van Helsing takes the rest of the holy water and splashes it onto the Baron's face, which melts. Very cool. The Baron kicks the coals that Van Helsing had been using, starts a fire in the windmill. Van Helsing and Marianne manage to kind of climb up and get out while (laughs) the Baron like walks out the front door. He's still like dealing with acid face and it's like a full moon. Van Helsing thinks quickly, what can I do to stop this vampire? I know, create a cross of some kind, just like I did with Dracula. He sees the shadow from the windmill um, kind of over top of the Baron and he moves the windmill fan to make a cross in the shadow, which destroys the Baron, and then they hop off the windmill as it goes up in flames, and presumably the vampire brides with it. And that's the end. There's a lot of cool <laughs> stuff here. A lot of cool stuff. like In an overall lackluster movie. I emphasize the parts that I did really like. Um, the opening bit, the killing of the Baroness, Greta birthing a vampire midwifing i should say um and gina confronting marianne but by and large this movie is messy i can't even say convoluted because there's not enough going on here just nothing really comes together nothing goes anywhere yeah uh one thing that i i did really like that i didn't mention 
is the wardrobe. Oh, sure. Everyone looks baller. Van Helsing in particular. Yeah, great clothes. If you're into costume design, you should watch this movie. One thing I noticed about this movie, and it's kind of like this trend in vampire fiction that sort of, if you follow vampire media from Dracula onward, as we do, there's this trend towards compression, okay? So in Dracula, he has superpowers like transformation and and whatnot, and he can't use them during the day. During the day, he's just stuck as a human. And since he still needs to sleep like anybody, might as well sleep during the day when you don't have your superpowers and hunt at night when everyone else is sleeping. And in Dracula, you know, he... To clarify, do you mean the book? I mean the book. Yeah, sorry. I'm talking the original Bram Stoker novel. This is how it works. You know, to feed on people, he comes to them night after night. And like slowly they get weaker and they sicken, which is where vampire mythos comes from, right? It came from like diseases people couldn't explain. If he wants to turn you into a vampire, like he drinks your blood until you die, you drink some of his blood, now you're a vampire. It's this like reciprocal thing. If you want to like destroy him, you got to like stake him to hold him in place. Which Horror of Dracula followed. Then you this have, movie doesn't. Right. Then you have to cut off their head, burn them, get rid of the ashes in the river. Like there's all these kinds of, it's a multi-step process for everything, right? And then Nosferatu comes along and says, no, 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 they can't go out in the sun. If they go out in the sun, they burn up and turn to dust. You know, over time, the other stuff gets shortened too, right? Like in this movie, by the time we get to this movie, like feeding on someone is not like a gradual thing that happens over the course of many weeks. Like it did even in horror of Dracula. It's like one attack, boom, you're dead. Yeah. And not only that one attack, boom, you're dead. And you will definitely for sure rise as a vampire the next night. Like everything's on this much faster pace. And that even like comes to the ways of killing them where like all you need to do now is stick a stake through their heart. Boom, that's it, that's done, that's the end. Actually, all you need is a shadow. Sure, okay, I'm going to get to that. Okay. But that's a great example, right? And it's like we're speeding things up so that we can have a faster-moving plot with more victims and vampires and violence in, like, the course of a 90-minute movie, right? But the problem with that, if you're trying to stick to gothic, is it's all about the vibes. Right. And that isn't necessarily at odds with action, but it can be. Yeah. If you what you're wanting to do is kind of, like, move as quickly as possible, it becomes more difficult to establish an atmosphere, right? And this trend has continued forward with vampires, you know, until we get to, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where, like, not only does stabbing them with the stake kill them, but, like, also instantly turns them into dust, right? Um, Whereas here we get the more hammer horror style, like, big pumps of blood coming out when you stab them. The ending, I do not like. No. Here's the thing. It is... Better than what you described originally in the sense of this makes more sense for Van Helsing. Yes. But that ending would have been much more baller. This movie ends in such a whimper. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like they almost overcompensated on Van Helsing not bargaining with hell. Because in the first movie, he comes across as kind of like a scientist guy who uses church stuff because that's what's effective on vampires. Whereas in this movie, he's like accompanied by like choir and organ music. (laughs) Wherever he goes, he feels like an avenging angel sent straight from God. The Um, music is great. I do love it. Um, I see what you're saying. I feel like part of also the way that this movie feels like it ends on a whimper is because it has the like, oh shit, he's been bitten. Right. And so you're kind of like, what are they going to do? Yeah. What's going to happen? And then they just kind of go, they whiff it. Well, 
I think the thing of like Van Helsing, like cauterizing his own wound is cool. Like that's cool. But it does have that like Chewbacca in Rise of Skywalker problem where the scene where he fixes it is immediately the scene after he gets bitten. So there isn't really enough time to like play with this idea of like, oh, Van Helsing, you're going to turn. What would you do if you turned kind of like thing? Personally, I think the score is a little bit over the top a lot of the time. (laughs) That said, that said about this ending, so I I hate it on the one hand. I do kind of love it on the other hand because I cannot fucking believe that they topped Van Helsing holds two candlesticks together to make a cross from the first movie into Van Helsing makes a giant cross shadow with a windmill. Like, I hate it, but I'm, I also kind of admire the gall of like, <laughs> yeah, we're, this is how we're going to do it. But what I don't like is Van Helsing in dialogue in this movie says that the two ways you kill a vampire are stake through the heart and burning. We see the stake through the heart of the Baroness. We don't actually see Van Helsing kill Baron Meinster. The best we can kind of assume is that, you know, the big cross shadow has rendered him um, kind of like paralyzed so that Van Helsing will be able to just easily come over and dispose of him. And that's fine. Like, I get it. The movie is, you know, communicated that the vampire has been defeated. But why the fuck is Van Helsing actually dealing with him? Something that happens off screen after the credits roll. And for that matter, you then just have to assume that the, the brides, the you know, titular characters, as it were, they must have died in the fire. Like, they're yeah. d- it's like, oh, yeah. There's nothing. There's like, nothing. You can assume it. It's a safe assumption, but it's still, like, a thing that happens off screen that the movie doesn't actually deal with. Like, the movie forgets to care about the titular characters, essentially. Which is why I think it's very interesting that the scenes that feel like they have the most energy and spark mm. all are very female heavy and focused. Yes, I would agree. Like the thing that makes the first act feel different from like the standard, like Harker arrives at Castle Dracula thing is this whole thing of like the old woman Mm -hmm. in the castle and like, Oh, you can't let my crazy son out of the attic, like very Gothic stuff. But then she's also talking to a young woman and kind of like, She's warning her off, but we later find out that like this whole elaborate setup is like a thing that this Baroness does regularly to feed her son. Because yeah. what we what we learn is essentially that she basically let her son fall in with a bad crowd. And then when somebody in that bad crowd uh, turned her son into a vampire, because the actual connection with Dracula was cut out. It was in earlier drafts, right? That this guy was created by Dracula. Yeah. But here it's just like implied. It's just like, yeah, one of them, a particular one of them turned this guy into a vampire. So it's all just implied. Um, But she let this happen. And then rather than like get a priest or a doctor to destroy her son, she was like, "I'll, I'll just keep him chained up and feed him like sexy babes whenever one happens to come into town. Yeah. Like it fits in like the train of thought that you would expect for a gothic story right like it's, it's jane the, eyre and like yeah my crazy wife i'll lock her up in the attic exactly like, that makes total sense yeah. right no works really well uh you have the baroness you have greta you have greta's great greta's greta great. is like an unsung hero greta here. is a fascinating character played with a plum by frida jackson who has like so much going on that the movie doesn't actually mine like she's the baron's nurse who's been here since like the baron and his mother and father moved into this castle and she's raised him the whole time and then the baroness dies and she's like well i'm more of your mother than the baroness was kind of thing and she becomes his like renfield basically and then after getting all these cool scenes her death is like really fucking random she does not get enough to do the baron is not there when she dies so there's no no characters react to her dying really in any way as best as i could tell the way she dies is like she and van helsing and the brides are all kind of struggling in a doorway and she kind of like falls 
Yeah. And then just like falls to her death. And, but it's like, it does look like it's a pretty far fall. Oh, totally. But it's like, nobody pushes her. Nothing actually happens. It's almost just like she kind of slips and falls. Cause there wasn't enough room for her to stand there. Like it's really random. Well, someone decided that there needed to be a death in this moment. Yeah. Um, also, and this is kind of tied to the ending of like, you know, I call on the powers of hell or whatever. Um, the Baron does not feel as much of a threat that Van Helsing would need to do that. Right. Like, not only is the Baron like just some like, I don't know, he feels just like a punk. Right. Who's just making brides left and right because like he's been chained up for like his whole vampiric life. But he also really doesn't feel like he has any charisma or screen presence. No, they, they kind of really play on the idea of like him, you know, can she, he has the traditional vampire power thing of like, he can charm you into doing his bidding. If you look at him kind of thing, like he, he does the like Bella Lugosi, like come here thing on no, his he, mother. He just looks, he just looks. But like, you're right that like David Peel doesn't, really have the charisma for it they're trying to make him super handsome right they give him this great blonde hairdo he looks like prince charming from shrek right which i think like they're trying to play into this idea of like him looking like prince charming and then you know lures you in they do the same thing they did with christopher lee in the first one of like he kind of has like a sexy look and then like a feral look when he's doing his vampire thing i think it works in the first act of mm. like this Prince Charming and like disarming Marianne and all of this. Um, but for the rest of the movie, it doesn't work. Like at no point do I feel like anyone is actually in danger. Yeah. He unfortunately stops being an interesting character after the first act. Yeah. Like in the first act, he's interesting because yes, he's like, no, it's my mother who's mad. You have to escape me. And you're left being like, oh, who do I believe? Right. Mm -hmm. And then he gets out and there's this confrontation between him and his mother where suddenly the tables have turned and then he attacks his mother. And I'll get to that in a second, but it's like really cool and really interesting. And it's like, he's, he's, you know, super dangerous because he was able to play innocent and all this kind of stuff. But I think the biggest problem, and, and I totally agree with you is like, basically after he escapes, David Peel never manages to establish that air of invincible menace that Christopher Lee had. Mm -hmm. And I think part of this is not having the same charisma. Part of this is that, uh, so Peter Cushing was six feet tall. Uh, Christopher Lee, much taller, much tall. Christopher Lee, too tall. Uh, I don't remember his exact height here. I want to say like 6'5 or something. But taller than Cushing. Right. Uh, David Peel, 5'10, had to wear lifts in his scenes with Peter Cushing. I... Which like, I don't want to say like I'm, you know, ragging on a short king here because like I'm very short. I'm 5'5, five five, right? But I'm just saying like he doesn't have the screen presence that Christopher Lee did. And maybe some of that's David Peel. But I think... The other part of it is that compression thing I was talking about where yeah. the faster you make the methodology of killing a vampire, the easier you make it, the less of this like implacable, terrible threat they feel. Because like if all I need to do to disarm you permanently and like make you like collapse, paralyzed on the ground is like hold two of my fingers up next to each other in like a cross shape. Like, I'm sorry, but you're not a threat. No, I'm totally with you. Um, I feel like it's a real shame that the brides don't get to do anything, particularly because the Gina Stable scene feels so good. Yeah. A lot of this script feels very unclear. It feels, you can feel that it's three different versions, basically. Mm -hmm. um, particularly because, you know, I was excited about the idea of a vampire movie talking about class because that makes so much fucking sense and you know there's like comments here and there but it doesn't coalesce into anything it feels like someone did a control f search to like find different spots to put in some kind of reference to class but like didn't actually put in the work to make it anything nothing really resolves into a theme exactly is the thing i think the only thing i disagree with you about is the music because you're like oh it's too much and it's like listen the music and Cushing are the only thing getting me through this movie 
I will say that, you know, if we want to talk about what's good in the film, I'm agreeing with you on basically everything. Uh, I think Martita Hunt is fantastic as Baroness Meinster. She's great. I really enjoyed her. Um, I totally agree that the brides are a disappointment because they don't, they don't get to do anything once they're vampires. Like literally. Well, one of them doesn't get to do anything because she's dead. Right. When she's not a vampire. Right. But like Peter Cushing's there in the windmill, gets bit by the Baron, wakes up, finds out he's been bit, makes like his little cauterizing piece of iron, cauterizes himself, pours holy water on himself. And then it's revealed that the two brides have just been standing there watching him do this the whole time. And it's like, why didn't you stop him or something or, like or anything? attack and finish draining him of blood right. when he was knocked out? Yeah, like, like, it's so weird that these are the title characters of the movie and they do absolutely nothing but stand there and look pretty. With the stable scene that you've pointed out, it's a really good scene. And it is part of a wider trend in this movie that I wanted to point out, which is that the vampire bite as sexual embrace basically becomes text here. Mm -hmm. Cushing refers to a vampire bite as the kiss of the vampire, uh, which is not language I think we've heard before. When Gina wakes up, she apologizes to Marianne because like Marianne's engaged to the Baron, but the Baron made love to Gina when he killed her and drained her blood. But then she's like, don't worry because I can love you And we'll all just be together. And she refers (laughs) to like what she's going to do to Marianne is kissing her. Right. And bringing in that lesbian vampire thing. This is all leading to, uh, I'm presuming an Oedipal complex here. Well, so then because this has been made explicit now, it's been made text. We have to read the Baron's attack on Van Helsing as having homoerotic undertones And we also then, the act of him killing his mother becomes not just matricide, but also incest at the same time. So yes, the movie becomes very Oedipal because, because I mean, his dad's totally not in this movie. His dad's, you know, so he, he only has the one parent. So he's got to fuck and kill the same parent because there's only one, right? Yeah. And I think also worth noting here is his mom, the Baroness is like, horrified that she's been turned into this thing yes she doesn't fight van helsing she's like i'm stuck like this and he's like there is a way out yeah and so then he kills her and she she, lets it happen yes so there's a a lack of consent in the attack yeah i really liked little details of like the baroness's performance um, like Martita Hunt's performance as the Baroness. There's a lot of like little details throughout that really ring true. Things like where she like rolls her eyes at certain sentences or my favorite little details after she's been turned, she always holds like her hand or a veil up in front of her mouth so that you can't see her fangs. Like she's ashamed yeah. of them. Yeah, really good stuff that way. It just sucks that the movie doesn't realize how good all of the female actors are. Mm, yeah. And doesn't really, like, go anywhere with their stuff, right? Yeah. Like, I, I'm i not going to say it was a mistake that Van Helsing is in this movie. Because, I mean, something's got to link it to Dracula. Um, but I kind of think... Um, so this is going to be a little bit of a wild pull. But, but come along with me on this journey. Okay. Uh, in 1962, I think, a James Bond novel came out, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. And... That novel, like many of the Bond novels, is not like its movie version, um, but to an even extremer degree. Um, the movie was only allowed to use the title. Spy Love Me is a very unique James Bond novel because it is a first-person novel from the point of view of the girl. And it depicts her as this girl who, you know, goes about her life. It's very like um, Slice of Life. Uh, she gets a bad job. It turns out things are like related to the mob and she gets into a lot of trouble. And next thing she knows her life is being threatened. And in like the start of act three, 
this guy shows up out of nowhere and like kills the people threatening her life. And it turns out it's James Bond and she falls in love with him and they have sex and all that other kind of stuff. And it's basically, you know, a Bond movie from the girl's point of view so he doesn't show up until the end when he saves her this would have been better if it had really been marianne's movie Mm -hmm. and if we had been with her the whole time and if we'd explored ideas of like feminine fellowship sort of with like which like i guess fellowship's probably not quite the right word then but feminine bonding and and sorority kind of stuff in terms of like no come join the bride's Marianne and be part of this group of women and like what does it mean to be one of these women who serves a vampire and like what does all this mean and then like have Van Helsing show up in act three out of nowhere to save the day and the audience doesn't need a lot of explanation it's like that's Van Helsing it's Peter Cushing like he's here to kill stuff but then like by that point, you know, Marianne could have a lot of like really mixed emotions about like, well, I want to be saved, but also these are my vampire sisters. And you know what I mean? I get that it's 1960 and we're really not quite at the like revisionist horrors, second wave feminism kind of place that we would need to be to do that movie. But yeah. And I will say that most times that I've seen a story sort of like that, it's witches because of a coven. Hmm. Probably because of that, like, feminist angle, and it's not related to marriage, but more about a sisterhood. Right. Um, If you do want to look at a story that examines the brides of Dracula as, like, a group, the graphic novel Dracula Motherfucker is a pretty good one for that. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) That's um, a tangent. I do love Jack Asher's color cinematography. Um, Yeah, like... This movie fits within the Hammer Horror milieu in terms of how it looks and how it's shot and everything. Gotta love that purple edge lighting coming in from off camera and, and stuff. And like the green backlighting. Like yeah. it, it looks great, but we've said this a million times with all of the other Hammer movies. Um, you had said that people have um, commented that this movie is like peak. Yeah. I disagree. Totally. Horror of Dracula so far has been the peak, mm-hmm. which makes sense because that's what sets everything else off, right? Yeah. So I'm I'm disappointed in this movie, but I'm not I'm not like saying this is going into like the number two hundreds, you know? No, no, this is not a bad movie. This is just like a fine movie. It's it's got second movie feels, you know, in the days before the trend of like the second movie is the best one kind of came about, right? Like we're, we have not yet had from Russia with love or the Godfather part two or the empire strikes back. We're still kind of in the days of like son of Kong or Godzilla raids again, where the second movie is kind of not (laughs) great, you know? Yeah. Uh, And that's how I felt about this. Like it's okay. Would you like to move on to ranking? Yeah. Let's find out how okay it is. So I have a spot picked out. Do you have a spot or a range? I have a range, but it's very narrow. Okay, interesting. Well, why don't you go first since you have the range, and then we'll see if my spot is anywhere nearby. Okay. So we went on a journey with you. Come on a journey with me. Mm -hmm. Horror of Dracula is number eight. Right. This movie is not as good as Horror of Dracula. No. And I don't think it deserves to be this high. No. I also wanted to call out Frankenstein at number 23 because windmill. Right. Yeah. Frankenstein's windmill is much better. (laughs) Just to, you know, for ranking windmills here, Frankenstein goes above. Sure. Um, So that's number 23. So then I was like, okay, no, just keep going. Just keep going. And I was like, I need to figure out a floor at Mm. the very least. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what are some of the really memorable, really good, fun vampire movies. And you know the one that we always turn to? Return of the Vampire? No, Cowboy Vampire. Right. That is Curse of the Undead at number 80. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ooh, I fucking love that movie. I would rather watch that movie than this movie any day. Okay. Because it's so unique. But that is a cheap Western Yes. Horror shit thrown in. Yes. And it does it fucking well. The skill that's going on in Brides of Dracula in terms of the filmmaking, 
um, the color, uh, the edge lighting and all of the cinematography, mise-en-scene, all of that jazz, like brings us to another level, the costuming, um, the acting. Yeah. This is like a straight up Gothic horror. Yeah. And if I were to just even take like the first act mm-hmm. and compare it to Curse of the Undead, like Curse of the Undead also has its lulls of like, now we have to do the Western stuff for you, real quick to set up that there's Wranglers on the farm or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So like, it's not a good one-to-one. So I was like, okay, as much as I love Curse of the Undead, this at least offers a place to start moving upwards from. Okay. And then I continued to think about other vampire movies, and my eyes settled on El Vampiro and El Ataud del Vampiro. Right, which are our, uh, which are our Mexican ones. Yeah, so El Vampiro 64, El Ataud is 65. El Ataud is um, dudes carrying around the, the coffin yeah. a lot, and um, it's not as good as El Vampiro. El Vampiro really like leans into the atmosphere, and it's creepy as fuck, and it's... Oh, it's good. But it also is very much a, let's just follow the beats of Dracula. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this feels like a much better floor. Mm-hmm. I I think it could go below El Vampiro, but I feel like it should go above El Ataud, um, because of everything that Brides of Dracula is doing and also everything it's failing to do. Sure. So my floor is 64. Looking above, I was like, ooh, not a vampire movie. But a Peter Cushing movie, mm-hmm. The Flesh and the Fiends, at 61. That movie is so good. It's so chilling throughout the entire thing. Like, that movie is also really held together very tightly. We do have some criticisms of its ending. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, for the most part, that The Flesh and the Fiends is really, really tight. The Brides of Dracula is not tight. No. And even though we have criticisms about The Flesh and the Fiends' ending, the ending it does have is fine. Yeah, it's an ending. It It's it's not just the movie stopping. Exactly, which it's happens not, here. It's not just like as if Star Wars like had the shot of the Death Star exploding and then was just like written and directed by George Lucas. I mean, that... It would be more, we don't see it explode right. because we don't we, see the Baron explode. Right, then. right. It would be, it would be, we see Luke's torpedoes go down the hole and then written and directed by George Lucas. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so my range ultimately is 61 to 64. Amazing. Okay, Sarah. So I did the same thing. I started at Horror of Dracula. I'm like, this is not better than Horror of Dracula. It's not going up above here. Let's find like, what's the next lowest vampire movie and i kind of just skipped to different vampire movies like we've got dracula at 26 i'm like sorry y'all the bella lugosi dracula is good uh we've got return of the vampire at 39 sorry y'all also a good movie uh nosferatu classic 41 curse of frankenstein another hammer horror is uh down here at 46 i don't think this is as good as that that movie talked about class consciousness much better than this movie did. Absolutely. Vampire. I love Vampire. It's at 55. I think that Brides of Dracula is probably an easier movie to watch for the standard mainstream audience, but I think Vampire's imagery is going to stick with me much longer than anything from this movie. And then I hit L'Amante del Vampiro at 62, which is the movie about the dance troupe the sexy dance troupe that gets attacked by vampires and was fun and was cool and had a bit of a confusing plot but was like fun and cool and i'm like okay interesting and i see that like right near there is el vampiro and el atau del vampiro which also are like these are cool fun movies like not masterpieces but like fun like we really had fun with el atau and like him continually flying at the guy and whatever and i was like okay this feels like the right zone for brides of dracula which also is like very slight it's not a masterpiece but it's not bad it's kind of fun in a lot of spots and i'm like okay okay and then i see the flesh and the fiends at 61 and i'm like oh that's a much better peter cushing movie so i picked out a spot and my spot was 62 right in my range yes hilarious amazing what what is this what's going on we, here we should host a podcast together right. or something 
Um, cool. Let's do that. <laughs> All right. So entering the list at the new number 62 is The Brides of Dracula from 1960, directed by Terrence Fisher. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr, or you can email us at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review, telling a friend about the show, or helping the show out financially by heading on over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content, and we really appreciate all of our patrons whose support makes it easier for us to take the time out to do these episodes, do the research, pay our hosting fees, and all of that. So if you really like what you've been hearing, head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, I think, you know, I kind of set it up in the context setting. Oh. But we are watching the movie that this film was the A picture to, uh, The Leech Woman. She's gonna get you. She's gonna get you. Cool. That means I'll get to share some more leech facts. Right. After we did Attack of the Killer Leeches. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> will see. Hopefully it doesn't suck. I mean, it. it's a leech, Ben. See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.